Hello and welcome to the First Time Founders Podcast, the show where we talk about how to start a business from nothing and grow it into something meaningful. I'm Rob Lydiard. I was the co-founder CEO of a software business called Yapster that was acquired in 2022. I'm now a professional implementer of the Entrepreneurial Operating System, which means I work with entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial leadership teams to help them get more of what they want from their business, to start hitting numbers, executing with more discipline and accountability, and fixing some of the dysfunction that entrepreneurial teams often find creeping into their teams. We can be a bit chaotic in the startup world. Today, I'm talking to Ael Malinga, who's a co-founder of Resurge Growth Partners, a venture special situations fund that's going into companies um, typically as a controlling investor where venture firms have realized that they've built a great company, but the company's not going to be a unicorn. It's not going to deliver the sort of venture type returns that venture investors are typically looking for and therefore needs to find an off ramp from that, you know, perpetually being funded um, on a loss making basis to move to becoming a more conventionally attractive profit generating growth equity company. Uh, Ale, because he's got a long background in both private equity and venture, is perfectly positioned to understand what that transition looks like. It's interesting from a first-time founder's perspective, because if you're a first-time founder, many of us start hoping that we're going to IPO and we're going to be the next you know, Facebook snowflake or whatever. But just law of averages, statistically, many of us do end up in the middle of the bell curve building good, but not Facebook-level companies. And I thought it would be really useful for listeners to understand that there still is a positive, exciting outcome for good companies that start on the venture flight path, but end up um, exiting it for a whole bunch of reasons that Ale goes into on this um, episode. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Ale Malinga. Ale, welcome to the First Time Founders Podcast. Thank you so much for doing this, my friend. Thank you for having me, Rob. I really appreciate it. Oh, listen, it's such a pleasure. I want to dive straight into the fact that you're becoming LinkedIn famous in the uh, in, in the in the founder community for folks that are looking for a new lease of life in their businesses where perhaps they've fallen off the VC flight path. Would you? Would you? Uh, there was an article just recently where you were quoted, and it was it was quite a dramatic article talking about orphan VCs. Would you mind giving folks a? a background on you, but like focusing on what you're doing now? Because I know there's so many people that have got generalized VC experience, but you're doing something particularly interesting, I think, from that community that a lot of founders will connect with. Sure, Rob. So yeah, as, as you point out, I don't really like the the term VC orphans. We like to call them great companies that deserve to be funded. Really, I've been a VC for the past 10 years, I spent seven years as a partner at Berengia. Before that, I was the company called Countrywide, where among other things, I did corporate venturing. But before that in my career, I started in private equity. I was both working in private equity at a company called Oak Tree Capital. And before that, McKinsey, I really focused on, on the private equity world. And one of the insights I've had being in the VC ecosystem is that VC is, is a fantastic model and it really works for some great companies, but it requires subsequent Round of fundraising, right? The model typically is you raise seed and then you raise more money and you burn more money and raise A and then raise B. And there's a very clear road for a typical VC company. But my insight was and my frustration also as an investor was that there are not that many off ramps from that road. And as a private equity investor, I would sometimes look at some companies and I would say, 
that's a great business, right? You have a great team selling a great product, growing at pretty good rates. But these companies, I found, get stuck, okay? And they get stuck because from the venture capital perspective, once a company is not growing at 100% year on year, it is much less likely, statistically speaking, for the company to hit very high valuation, unicorn returns, power law, 10x, whatever you want to call them. And so the VCs very often will lose interest in these companies because they suddenly realize, well, I'm unlikely to make venture returns on these companies. But on the flip side, these companies are sometimes a little bit stuck because they then say, okay, I've been on this road. How do I get off this road? And while private equity is very often a great acquirer of businesses, these companies never build the profitability muscle, right? They've always right. gone on the, let's raise money, let's burn the money, let's raise more money, and burn more money, where the main metrics that you were judged, judged on were revenue growth. The number one metric everybody's looking for, when really what you're trying to find is those hockey stick uh, performers. And so I think with those articles and the general feeling in the market is that you know, the, the venture capital model, by definition, will orphan some companies, right? If I have a portfolio and the portfolio has 20 companies, I need to look at the portfolio and say, look, I know that X number of companies are probably going to lose money and, and, and will go under. It depends on the portfolio, what you're doing. There'll be a number of really high-performing companies, the winners in my portfolio, the two or three that will are likely to return my fund. But there's a very big fat middle of great companies that are a little bit stuck, right? They got on the venture road. They're unlikely to get to the happy unicorn at the end of the rainbow of the venture road. And you know, our mission is how can we help these companies find an alternative funding model that works for them and gets a great outcome for all the stakeholders. And this is Resurge Growth Partners, right? So folks, you heard it here, if not first, but early. Exactly. Uh, my partner, Orrin, and I set up a fund called Resurge Growth Partners. Uh, and that's exactly what we do. So it is a, technically it is a buyout fund because we will take control in the companies we invest in. Uh, so it's a little bit more private equity in style, but we're very focused on venture-backed businesses and working in the venture ecosystem to work with these founders, funds, uh, and, and, and other stakeholders. What's the minimum size and level of sophistication that a business needs to have achieved to be to be interesting potentially to you? Look, for our fund, where we are right now, so this is recorded February 24, uh, our focus on companies doing at least, I would say, 8 million pounds of revenue and above. Over time, my expectation, and also that's part of our plan, is that many of these companies we acquire can serve as great platforms to help acquire other slightly smaller companies. Uh, so I do expect us to be very acquisitive, do a lot of buy and build, a lot of consolidation. Uh, but at the moment, we're looking to acquire sort of that level of um, of scale because that is where you have enough to work with. They're a small team, and we need to make sure we're buying and backing a team uh, that go to a certain level of maturity in terms of product market fit uh, and product maturity. It's exciting. And how, how hands-on will you be with the with the companies that that, that come into you know, under your ownership or majority investment? I mean, it's going to be is it going to be quite different different to what you were doing as a VC? So first I'll answer, you know, I don't know the typical VC and I don't have the recent data, but usually 
the typical holding period for a VC-backed company, if I remember correctly, is between seven and 10 years. Right. And we're seeing many venture funds now reaching their 10-year investment term and getting further extensions of one or two years. So the holding period is relatively long. And that's by virtue of it takes you quite a long time to grow from a company doing one or two million ARR to get to this quantum of scale for an IPO or a large strategic exit. As a private equity buyer, we're much more, I wouldn't call it short-term focus, but our focus is how can we buy these companies in VC world and sell them into private equity world? And we expect to hold them between three and five years. Uh, Much less than three is not enough for our work to bear fruit. Uh, And if by year five, you know, all the work we've done is not clear, I'm not sure we've done our work well. So probably three to five years is the sweet spot. And what might that work look like? What sort of um, initiatives are you envisaging? I mean, there'll be injections of talent. Just, I I guess it could be whatever the company requires, right? But it'd be awesome to unpack what's in your imagination of the likely, what are the most likely operating scenarios that you're expecting to to encounter? It's a very good question. I think the, the first surprising answer is that people think, oh, you know, you're going to come and immediately cut costs. I don't think, and I think, and I don't want to predict, and you know, so I don't want somebody pointing to this podcast in a few months that you said, but <laughs> most of the companies we will be looking at have been to two, three, or four rounds of reduction in force, typically. Yes. Right? They've already been there. The VCs told them, guys, slow burn, reduce your burn, they reduce the burn. Now the growth has reduced as well. Uh, and so the first place we'll be looking for is really around team, right? We're looking to put primary money to the company and how can we augment the team that is in place with the great team members, be it board or executive team members. One of our insights, and you work with first-time founders, many founders are accidental founders or accidental mm. CEOs. So the founders are not by accident, but by accidental CEOs. Yes. Right? You and your two friends came up with a great product. And, okay, you're going to do sales, I'm going to product, and, oh, my God, I'm stuck with the CEO. But that is not everybody's passion, right? So if you can work with founders who say, you know what, what I'd really love to do just do sales. I love sales, right? I'd really love to uh, to do a product. I'd love to do R&D. But there is this narrative in the VC ecosystem that it's all about the hero story of the founder, mm. the hero story of the founder CEO. And the truth, and I'm sure you know that, is it's not always like that, right? So some people are, are fantastic CEOs and can take the company from zero to 100. But it's a lot about being quite introspective and saying, this is the things that I'm really great at. That's the thing I want to focus on. By the way, the CEO can stay as CEO and he can say, look, I want to keep running the business, but I know I need help with a sales team, with the go-to-market, with the marketing, whatever it is, right? We will work with them. So that's number one. Another element which I alluded to is buy and build uh, an M&A. This is a fantastic way to grow a business which doesn't happen a lot under the VC structure, which we intend to um, to pursue quite a bit. And then both Oren and I come from strategy backgrounds, right? There's usually a lot of strategic work um, with these businesses in terms of what is the right place to go, what are the markets to play, what are the right markets not to play in. And then just like any you know, quite astute financial investor, a lot of the work to begin with are putting inside the right financial controls, governance, making sure we're measuring the right thing, making sure we're looking at the right thing, right? I'm sure you've seen a lot of people chasing vanity metrics. Right. And 
when it says vanity metrics, you may be creating great vanity business, right? But if you don't have a very great clarity <clears throat> on where exactly you're making money, it's going to be very hard for you to grow profitably. I can see why you're so excited about it. When I came into your, you very kindly had me at your office and I you know, met you and Oren walked past. There's a great chemistry between you because you both have incredible experience, but quite like you come across quite differently as well. I'd love you to get into a bit of the dynamics of how you guys and why you guys came together and what the kind of the, the emerging culture of, of, of the firm is as a result of your, your founding backgrounds and personalities. Absolutely. So... Oren was my first boss when I moved to London. So Oren hired me into Oak Tree Capital 14 years ago. Really? Uh, and so I learned a lot of what I know about investment, having worked with Oren for Oren at Oak Tree. Uh, Oren is an operator through and through. In many ways, he is the, the godfather of the operating model inside private equity funds in Europe. He oozed that when he's got so much gravitas, hasn't he? Right. And so while well, I come from the venture capital investment, finding the deals, sourcing the deals, executing them, doing the due diligence, all of the pretty work, or it comes with transformation. Once we acquire what we do with the business, Oren's story is fascinating. Oren was a, worked as an analyst at a sort of precursor to private equity back in the early 90s, joined McKinsey, became a partner in McKinsey, really focused on turnarounds and transformations. And he then had this insight back in again late 90s that private equity funds, as they grow, will need an operating model. We'll need an operating partner model uh, after the quality of business as, as the business become larger. He shoved this idea around and ended up uh, joining Guy Hans, just as he was setting up within Nomura, what later became Terraforma. Right. And so really one of the first operating teams in Europe was Oren's team that he started. And he then ran, uh, when Oak Tree in Europe set up, he joined him as a founding team member to set up the same team at Oak Tree for a number of years. He was then CEO of the world's largest gym chain. So he brings a lot of operating experience. For the last five years, Oren has been investing and serving as executive chairman for scale-ups, doing exactly the kind of work we're doing with the fund here. And so in many ways, the way we think about it, you know, to do this well, a VC cannot do this well, right? Me, as a, VC, as a venture capitalist, right? I, I, the opportunity occurred to me three years ago, but I was like, I cannot do this. I need someone who can help me <laughs> work with these companies. And it's where I get my energy from, right? I get my energy from 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 working within the VC ecosystem, from doing the deals, uh, from looking at them. Whereas Oren gets the energy from transformation, right? And a, and a private equity guy cannot do it on his own either, right? Because you need to have the other side of the equation uh, of, of getting the deals done. So we love working together. Uh, and we think we're highly, highly complementary in that sense. And I think founders feel it, right? I think you know, when we work with founders uh, and, and, and with, with venture funds, right, the value of having someone like Oren, who has worked with so many companies, has done over 100 acquisitions in his career, built 16 platforms, is, is invaluable. Well, watching you guys riffing with each other and like in the space of a five-minute passing conversation over a coffee in the kitchen, seeing you guys go from 50,000 feet to two feet down and back up again, you know, I'd been boring on about the entrepreneurial operating system to you and getting some feedback. And Aaron, like, knew what it was, had three examples of, like, how he'd used it, where it had worked and where it hadn't. And then he just, like, he just shook my hand and walked off again. I was like, I kind of felt like I could have been talking about anything and he would have had the same depth and breadth of knowledge. It was a trip. And you've got a technical background as well, haven't you? So you, you, you I know you've got that kind of deep finance experience, but if I've understood you, you originally, mm -hmm. didn't you start programming? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm a software engineer by training. So I, I spent about six years of my early careers 
writing code for all kind of weird and wonderful things, including <laughs> boxes which are now buried somewhere d- deep under London's pavement and provide the internet. Uh, we're probably speaking on. Um, I've done that, and I, I, I see writing code as a form of art. I really enjoy it, just like I enjoy making music, but I don't think it is necessarily where I wanted to, what I want to do when I grow up, right? I saw people around me growing up 10 years older than me doing the same job, and I'm like, I like it. I have a, I, I have a very visceral understanding of technology, right? So some people just see technology and, and not everything, and cyber is one area that I've been trying to learn. It. And uh, So I come from tech, but about 20 years ago, or yeah, pretty much 20 years ago, um, I decided I want to go more into investing. Uh, I ended up working at McKinsey for a number of years. McKinsey sent me for my MBA, got my MBA at the US, uh, spent years in the US, and then moved here. So for the last quite a few years, I've been doing uh, very uh, focused on finance. I, it, it's it's so cool and it's so interesting. I mean, I, I don't know that many people in the private equity world. My 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 exposure was I was a young private equity lawyer before I realized I was a, a terrible lawyer. And the only thing I was any good at was selling, which is talking my way into a law firm to begin with. Once I got there, I was horrific. But I did quite, a, I made quite a lot of coffee and photocopied quite a lot for those private equity folks. And the vibe I definitely picked up from your firm is very like finance literate, but it's just, I don't know, it's just a different, it's just, there was a different chemistry, a different personality. And so I can see why it's an interesting proposition for founders. Are you, are you just completely industry agnostic, culture agnostic? Like, are there any, are there any characteristics of a business that's likely to repel you other than it just being too small for your mandate? Like, are there things that are like too broken for you? So, so (laughs) first of all, you said two things that are completely different. You said industry agnostic and culture agnostic. I think if you're culture agnostic, you're suicidal, right? Because because <laughs> you know you have to be very very culture minded in every company you invest in. Because you're not going to be yeah, it's not such a turnaround that you you're expecting to do open heart surgery. And you know even if you do open heart surgery, there needs to be a a underlying culture you're going to work with. And really, the way we think True. about it before I answer the industry is we don't want to do a turnaround of a company. We're not looking to do turnarounds. We're not looking to distress investing. We're looking for a good company where there's a special situation or problem with the cap table or the balance sheet, right? Where there's a good fundamental business uh, uh, underneath it uh, and something we can work with. In terms of our criteria beyond size, number one, we're, we will invest in loss-making businesses, but not too loss-making, right? So right. We're to no more than 20% EBITDA losses. And the reason is quite simple, Rob. I think a business doing 10 million of revenue and losing 1 million, probably you can fix, probably I can fix, right? In terms of, let's say, stop the bleed, call it this way. Yeah. The business doing 10 of revenue and losing seven is much harder, right? The revenue growth required to cover those kind of losses is very significant. Uh, in terms of industry, I would love to do AI. I would love to do impact. <laughs> but one of the things we learned at Oak Tree is that the best investments are made where everybody's running away from somewhere, right? There's, there's a lot of saying by Warren Buffett, et cetera, but really uh, uh, investors and particularly venture investors are herd animals, right? That's the way we behave and everybody wants to do AI, then everybody wants to do AI. But on the flip side, nobody wants to do prop tech and so nobody wants to do prop tech or fintech or consumer, okay? Interesting. And so our, th- that is why, you know, 
we do, are looking for tech-enabled businesses. We are usually looking for venture-backed, which doesn't have to be it's usually venture-backed businesses. So the few things we like, but really from a sector perspective, we ex- expect most of our deals to be in areas that are not the most sexy, but that is also what creates opportunity and lack of competition that we allows us to come in uh, and get involved at a, at a price that we believe we can drive the returns we need to drive. There are industries that I don't see us doing, which are you know, very capex heavy, uh, you know, vice industry. There are a few things which are less likely, but by and large, we saw a lot of money flowing into a lot of sectors in the last five and ten years, and some of them had a massive pull up, pullback for no good reason. Some of them for good reason. Do, do you think the venture investors will will likely stay in? I'm probably getting a bit too into the weeds, but I'm just curious. I'm curious as to whether they'll completely exit their positions most likely in this world. Because you, you're like, I know you're one of the first, but you're likely not going to be the only fund to spot this opportunity, right? Like, how do you how do you think this emerging model is going to interact with the old VC model if you were still wearing your VC hat? Yeah, um, the answer is case by case, right? And we're still trying to find the right name for what we're doing. Uh, the best one I found so far is venture special situations, which doesn't really, you know, roll off the tongue. I'll call it VSS. Catch, catchy. Like <laughs> catchy. VSS is catchy, right? VSS, venture special sets. Uh, which means every situation is different. Right. Right. And every, even the same company with the same fund, the behavior will be different if it's a junior partner or, or an experienced partner. It will be different if you're invested from your 2018 fund or from a 2013 fund. And so the answer is it really, really depends on a case-by-case basis, right? And there's a big gamut, right? It can be all the way from the VC gets all of its uh, equity bought out, and maybe they make some money, maybe they return the money, maybe they lose some it's, it's There's a really, really big range. And that's also part of my insight as a VC looking at my portfolio, what is my risk profile and appetite in some of these companies uh, and, and the truth is, you know, as a VC, a lot of the, you know, basically you're flying seven or eight or nine airplanes at any, any point in time, okay? And you really want to land them, okay? Something you want to keep flying and something you just really, really want to land. And okay, get off the cockpit and move on. <laughs> uh, and, and that's the insight, right? So I think it depends on the fund and we work with venture capital funds. And let's face it, we have to be collaborative, right? Yeah. I cannot do the deal if the VCs on the cap table don't want to do the deal. Right. But I mean, I like it because I mean, I, now that now that I'm starting to, you know, absorb it, venture special situations, it's, it's kind of badass, you know, feel like it's I'm sort of having pictures of you with the sort of, you know, the, the, the black war paint under the eyes, like, you know, going in through the window to rescue rescue these these investors and these founders um from yeah, the situation they've got themselves into with video you cannot see me here with my commando knives and you know and <laughs> yeah yeah well that that might be what people are imagining rather than a room full of tech equipment <laughs> exactly you know like, who's who's the technical one in the a-team you, you can be that you can be that character there's oran oran's hannibal right the one with the cigar <laughs> Hannibal was, was it Hannibal? Ha- Hannibal, not Hannibal. Hannibal was Hannibal was the one with the cigar. He's like got the cheeky smile, and then I think there was face that was the kind of wild one. I, I wouldn't say you were the Mister T, but like there's um, <laughs> de- definitely like the the wizard that can get you break you into the into the safe or something. I um I think it's really exciting and it's nice. I feel like we're starting to see 
I would say that what you're doing, Venture Special Situations, and certainly the way you're marketing the opportunity is from what I've seen on LinkedIn is 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 positive, which I think is really exciting. There's been a lot of negativity, hasn't there, just in the world generally, but in the tech community specifically for the last couple of years. And and it's pretty exhausting. Um it's been really cool actually watching watching you kind of position the fund and seeing how you're quite careful. I joked at the beginning, but to correct doom-mongering journalists on what this what this really is. I, I, I say, and again, I should probably write, write another article about this. This is rocket fuel, right? With rocket fuel in your Volkswagen Passat, it will explode. <laughs> but but it, it's working for rockets. And, and it's, it's, it's knowing what works for your company, right? And it's realizing that some companies are great and we can work with the founder and, and get, to, get to, 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 to a great outcome. I think the other, the other point I would mention is from a founders, there's, there's, there's a misalignment between VCs and founders, a fundamental misalignment. Mm-hmm. And that is the amount of money that will make most founders happy and let's say settled in line is not always commensurate with the exit value that a venture capitalist would be satisfied with. And that creates tensions, especially when things aren't going to plan. And that's the question where, where usually the exit values that work for us also work very well for, for the founders and vice versa. Uh, so that's that, that, another insight. And, and how can we create different paradigms to support great businesses that aren't reliant on burning more and more cash and raising more and more money from other people, right? It's, it's just a different model. Totally. makes sense. Um, listen, you've been really positive, really, you know, balanced and elegant and poised. Just, you just humor me. Okay. We've got a first time founder community, many of which are just as childish as I am. Don't name anyone, of course, protect the innocent, but like how often in your VC career did you see companies that could have been rocket ships turn themselves into go-karts by self-inflicted founder decisions, acts of whether they were sort of commissions or acts of omission? Or do you think that most are, most often the outcome, the flight path that a company's ended up on is a feature, a sort of feature of the structural characteristics of it, like, you know, what markets it's in and the, the, the opportunity that's kind of inherent in the, in the idea? Like how often would you say genuinely it was a first time founder or even a repeat founder materially sort of changed their own trajectory on the downside by doing or not doing things and if it was if it was very often at all what were those things most commonly because it'd be nice for people to come off this listening to this (laughs) with some sense of what not to do (laughs) yeah it's a very good question look i didn't think it through before I'll, I'll start by, I have two ways to answer the question. Number one, I've been reading a lot about the history of venture capital and how VCs invest. And what I've learned is really, ultimately, you have three kinds of investors. I think. You have the Arthur Rock school of thought, where it's all about the people. Right? A great team will make it happen, and that's what you're going to back. You have the Don Valentine Sequoia School of Thought. Says it's all about the market, right? Show me a big market, and we're going to make multiple bets in that market, and that's going to make 
the, the ships rise and make sure you get the right ship to rise. And then you have the, the, the Kleiner School of Thought for Kleiner Perkins, which is it's all about the product. Show me a product that has the potential to revolutionize something. Kleiner Perkins, a great example, is uh, insulin uh, when they back genetic. And that's, that's what I want to put my mind on. If you take this and backtrack from that, you will see that a failure, all businesses go bust because they're out of money. Yes. But I can try and categorize them, right? Some of them are, you know, if the market wasn't there, the best farmer in the world ain't going to cut it. If the product, you didn't manage to get the product to where it needs to get to, development-wise, no founder is going to is going to help. Right? Again, maybe the founder has something to do with it, but usually that, that's a problem. Uh, and, and there's another one which is the product market fit, right? If if you haven't been able to, you got a great product, right? But Microsoft is doing so much better job than even marketing, which happened a lot in, in the history. Of course, then have a problem. And then you go to the founder. If you reflect, usually. It is a founder not having a deep understanding of their numbers, of profitability, where do they make money, where do they lose money. Yes. Right? And I think founders sometimes who start following the wrong North Star metrics that are not really, really linked to ultimately the numbers, uh, I saw that down some people. Not always. Look, in 2021, I say everybody with a pulse was able to raise to raise, <laughs> to raise money, uh, and, and you've seen a, a lot of a lot of silly silly things. Um, but yeah, if I had to advise first-time founders, make sure you really really understand on every product you are selling how much cash, profitability, contribution, whatever you want to call it. You're getting at the end of the day and keep that is your north star metric it's so true i was a disaster for that early in my entrepreneurial career i was very guilty of abdicating instead of delegating i think it's very common with sort of sales oriented mm-hmm. business type founders as opposed to technical or someone that comes out of management consulting you're quite good at the evangel evangelism thing. You go and find your first two early adopters in that kind of that far left part of the Jeff Moore crossing the chasm continuum. And um, <clears throat> you talk people into giving you a chance to build a product. And if you're not careful, you don't have some sort of <laughs> some help or mental framework to, to manage your own chart, your own development. You never switch over from evangelism into operating and analyzing and even if you get resources, you start hiring people to solve those aspects of the business for you. <clears throat> but of course, if you abdicate, I, you don't know enough about it to be able to supervise what's happening on your behalf, unless you're very lucky and you just luck into hiring the right person as a fluke and then they do a great job, you're super vulnerable to, to then not being in control of your own plane. So I, I agree, that's very good advice. It's interesting, you know, on your observation, I haven't heard it framed that way with the different schools of investment people, product, product market fit, and just market. But um, I'm going to use that as a, as a way of describing when I'm talking to founders, actually, because the example I've been using, and it's not as elegant, as eloquent as you, but 
I've been talking to founders about re- like reading the, the the book on Tesla, and um, and and how if I've, I never saw an early Tesla prototype or anything, but if I from from what I've been led to believe, the reason that Elon Musk was able to continue to access resources and get people to believe was because the original prototype Tesla, even one that wasn't in mass production, like blew people's minds away when he'd like spin them around the block. And so the fact that the product was so exciting to the early the early folks that were going to put orders in enabled him to get people to stay with him through production delays. Whereas you see a lot of B2B, particularly subscale fan, founders now that are clinging on to the idea that they're going to crack it, but their actual product isn't and has never been all that good or mind blowing. And so it's not surprising they don't get the same sort of, they don't get the number of times on bat to make everything else come together. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's very different. Also, you know, if you look at that example, that ticks all three boxes. Remember, he was, a, he was a founder. So Elon right. Musk was a CEO and he was a chairman and investor who came in. Correct. But at that point in time, he was a non quantum, right? SpaceX was already a very successful business and he sold. Zip to before that, right? And PayPal, right? So this is like a fourth time founder. The market is definitely huge in terms of car, cars. The product was mind blowing because it had the, 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 the roadster that would accelerate really well. So it got excited. The big leap of faith you had to do is around EVs or not EVs, right? That was the question, right? But I think. When people saw the product, because it convinced that maybe there is a uh, a story here of someone like Elon who revolutionized the space industry, uh, can also revolutionize the um, electric car industry. That's so, yeah, yeah, it's so true, actually. Again, because I haven't thought about this heuristic for looking at why the business is likely to see succeed, not likely to succeed, working or not working. Um, yeah, I just hadn't thought about it that way. But you're right; actually, did have largely a full house, doesn't? Didn't? Didn't he? Um, it's interesting trying to have conversations with founders that are in the struggle. I the conversation I often have with people, obviously, is: um, Are you executing so badly that you have no way of knowing what's wrong or right strategically? Like you can't even really assess the opportunity because your execution's so all over the place. But of course. <clears throat> A lot of times your execution can be fine and there's a structural challenge, a structural ceiling on on the opportunity. <clears throat> and the way you've described that, I think is mega, mega helpful. Does any of this play into the, the research story or not really? I mean, I guess you probably don't need to you don't need to be that kind of cerebral about it to you. You're not trying to see the future like you did when you were in VC. You're 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 trying to assess the value of an existing asset and and how not you can optimize this, it. Yeah, and not to the same level. But you want to avoid buying a falling knife, right? So there's a okay. lot of due diligence that goes into a process to make sure that the asset we are buying can continue to grow at 30% consistently year on year over the next four or five years. So we're not aiming for a 200% year on year, but we'll be convinced that whatever market you're in has enough tailwinds and the business is well positioned. Uh, and that ultimately, with capital deployed the right way, we can have profitable growth. Amazing. Um, now this has been so helpful. Are you happy for folks sort of all around the entrepreneurial ecosystem to, to, to reach out to you? I mean, is it is it as hard to get time with you now as it was when you were a VC being approached by a million, um, a million founders 
founders a week like what what sort of folks uh, are you happy to reach out to you and what is the best way to reach out to you if so yeah sure so first of all anybody with a company that falls under the criteria so over the eight million mark you can reach out to me i'm on linkedin if you actually bother to go through my linkedin profile you'll find an email there you can email and i always answer uh, and you can finish in this. It's uh, look it up. It's there. I'll put it in the show notes as well. You'd yeah. be surprised how few people bother opening my LinkedIn before look it up. It is there. The email is there. It's very easy to find my email. And look on the VC side, I, I, I keep telling this to people. People say, "Oh, you know, VC is such an exclusive community, and you guys are, you know, it's all about the warm intros." I'm like, "You're getting the story wrong, <laughs> right? You, Mr. Founder." A job and that is to sell, right? And you want to sell to the head of course, to the CMO of Coca-Cola, you know, so to the CRO of Dell, whatever it is, right? These people have walls and walls of defense around them. They really don't want to speak to you, right? In the VC communities, you have a few thousand all over London, ladies and gents, sitting in their offices with bags full of money, just wanting to give you the money, right? <laughs> wanting to give you, like, all the job is to talk to your founder and give you money, right? And so in some way, if you cannot get to the VC through a warm intro, through a cold, through stocking with an event, wherever it is, how are you going to sell to the people you really need to sell who don't want to talk to you? Because we do want to talk to you, right? And so I think that is one advice I'll give. The other one is you do have to do the work. Right, and you have to know that if you're speaking with my old firm Berengia, phenomenal firm, know the people, right? Anything over one million pound of revenue, Berengia would be very happy to speak to you, right? Berengia has great experience in consumer, great experience in software, right? Come and talk to us. But if you have a healthcare startup or doing nuclear reactors and you have 300k of revenue, it's not a very good use of your time, right? So being able to know who are the investors in your space getting more into to them, finding them uh, will help you get those discussions. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the job of a VC to see as many opportunities and triage quickly. Does uh, this fall under the criteria? Is interesting? Say a quick yes or a quick no and move on. I love it. So folks, you heard that. If you've got more than 8 million in revenue, then it emails in the show notes here or on LinkedIn. Don't be shy to reach out. And if you're not and you're scared of calling people, then you should go back and watch my episode with Krispy Kreme where, and the one with Ryman, actually, where we literally went through play by play how they went from opening my cold email to becoming a customer because you're, you know, I wasn't wildly successful, but I was shameless enough to go and win those early logos. And it is not particularly hard. You just got to be willing to put yourself out there. So thanks for uh, sharing that wisdom, reinforcing that. Yale. I appreciate it. This has been amazing. Thank you so much, my friend. Rob, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you uh, and good luck.